four expectant fathers in Minneapolis. They were in a Minneapolis hospital room, and they were waiting for their wives who were in labor. The nurse arrived and announced to the first man, she said, congratulations, you're the father of twins. And the man responded, that's, that's incredible, because I work for the Minnesota Twins. What a coincidence that is. About an hour later, the nurse comes back again and says to the second expecting father, you're the father of triplets. And he looked kind of amazed and said, that's amazing, because I work for the 3M Corporation. About an hour later, she comes back in, and she says to the third dad, expectant dad, and she said, you're not going to believe this, but you're the father of quadruplets. And he's just stunned, and he's shocked by this. And she said, don't tell me it's another coincidence. And he goes, I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. (laughs) And just then, the fourth expectant father faints, day cold, man. He just drops in the corner of the room and they all go over and run over to him and the nurse gets smelling starts and they start to to revive him and and just as they revive him they hear him mumbling the same thing over and over again I knew I shouldn't have taken a job at 7-Eleven I knew I shouldn't have taken a job at 7-Eleven on a much more serious note every wife wants and every child needs and the world yearns for a man who stands tall in a time of crisis a man who doesn't run away from or shirk his responsibilities when things get tough And in our continuing study of the book of Daniel, we're reminded once again that Daniel is a man for the crisis. Under the intense pressure of disaster and calamity, his faithfulness and continued dependence on the Lord marked him as a man with a noble purpose in his life. You know, Daniel devoted his devoted service and promotion by God to high office in the Chaldean. And as we'll learn as we go through our study, the Persian empires placed him in a unique position uh, to further and advance the plan of God for the nation of Israel. And in every age of God's plan for humanity, certain ordinary people step up to the plate and do the extraordinary. They use divine solutions to overcome adversities, thereby having impact on history and glorifying God in the process. It says, what kind of, you know, if you stop and think about it, what kind of people does God use to face these adversities? And I've become convinced as I've gone through the study and I've seen how God works even in my own life, that God chooses people who are prepared for that moment in time. And they're prepared by having a right relationship with the God who created them through faith in Christ. And more importantly, afterwards, they are people who are dedicated to studying the Word of God and being filled with biblical doctrine. Because only as they are prepared in advance can God use them at the moment of crisis. And Daniel was such a man. Doctrine was a priority in his life. Biblical input was a priority. And the knowledge of the Word of God is what he used to make decisions on a daily basis. If you stop and consider in chapters 1, 2, and 3, God placed three critical tests in the path of Daniel. And Daniel overcame each one of those and passed with flying colors. And the reason that he did was because he knew the word of God and he lived accordingly. In chapter 1, when he was tested by the king's diet, he dug down and determined in his own heart that he would not defile himself, meaning that he knew what the word of God said about what was permissible for him as a Jew to eat not to eat. And when he was asked to eat something that was not, he dug deep in his heart and he made a decision and he wouldn't defile himself, meaning that he made a choice that he wouldn't do what was wrong before God. We saw in chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar had a vision that was sent to him from God and Daniel was called upon to interpret that vision. Not only to interpret the vision, but also to even tell what that vision was prior to the interpretation. And Daniel, understanding the vision and understanding the interpretation and understanding the impact and the implication on Nebuchadnezzar's own life, still stood firm and did not compromise and try to water down the truth of God. 
that vision told him that his empire, his kingdom, would not last much longer. And that another would step up and replace him and another after that and another after that. Until eventually all the world empires and kingdoms on the face of this earth would be destroyed and obliterated by the coming of the kingdom of God. He knew that was the outcome and he knew that was exactly the truth. And yet he did not shirk from his responsibility to stand firm and just tell people, Hey, you know what, King, this is, I, I, this isn't you and I don't even want to hear this, but that doesn't matter to me. Because it's the truth of the word of God. And he stood firm and he stood tall. In chapter 3 we saw his friends were confronted by a compromise of worshipping an image that Nebuchadnezzar had made to himself. And the three of them were put in a position of worshipping this image and worshipping Nebuchadnezzar or being thrown into a fiery furnace. And he saw his friends just as he had committed in his own heart that he would not, that he would not do what was wrong before God. And they too had that same conviction and that same strength. Knowing that the word of God says that we're to keep God first in our life, to love the Lord our God with all our strength, all our heart and mind, and not, not to have any other gods before him. They knew the word of God. They knew the great commandment. They knew that God was a jealous God and there were no other gods ever to be put before him. And here they were put in a position of, would you put this image that was made, would this image now become your God? They said, no way. And they were cast as a result into a fiery furnace. Now in this fourth chapter of Daniel, Daniel faces a new challenge. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 4 as we consider this new challenge that's thrown before him. And in this chapter, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar has yet another vision. And in this particular case, the time, it's a vision of a great tree spreading forth in the middle of the earth. And once again, Daniel is summoned to interpret the dream. And Daniel must reveal to this most powerful of all monarchs God's displeasure and his divine judgment on his colossal arrogance. Could you imagine being put in a position where you're called before the greatest king that ever lived up to that point with the greatest empire on the face of the earth? And you're asked to interpret the dream that God has sent his way. And what he's going to find out is what is true from God's perspective. And we find it is the case all throughout the word of God. And that's, that's this, that you know what? Pride does come before the fall. That pride always comes before the fall. And this is the biblical perspective or the divine perspective that is going to be shared with Daniel from the throne room of God. And he has to share this with this king who, as we found out, has a colossal problem with pride. He built an image that was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide made of solid gold that was to mark his greatness as far as the king, his kingdom was concerned. And he called all the people underneath his dominion to come forward and to worship this image. And anyone that would not worship it would be, would be murdered and executed for their failure to obey. The man had a tremendous problem with arrogance and pride. Not long ago I came across a quote that relates to our topic and it reads like this. It says, when a man is wrapped up in himself, he makes a pretty small package. That's something we can all take home on Father's Day. When a man is wrapped up in himself, he makes a pretty small package. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was wrapped up in himself. And even though the image that he built was 90 feet tall in the eyes of God, he made for a pretty small package. And God was going to teach him a lesson. An important lesson that all of us can learn much from. And in Daniel chapter 4, we pick up on the account when we read these words. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. 
I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind, they kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related that dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation." There are five areas that we'll examine as we look at this particular passage. And the first one is found in this particular uh, uh, passage that we read or the verses that we read. And that are the circumstances of his dream. The circumstances of his dream are fascinating and we need to take a look at them in great detail because the circumstances uh, will help us to understand what's going on here. First of all, what we're going to find is basically this chapter is the autobiography of King Nebuchadnezzar. In this first verse we read where it says Nebuchadnezzar to all... Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all peoples, nations, and men of every language that live on the face of the earth. The king is now in a different position than he was at one point in his life. And basically what we have is a retrospective. He's looking back and he wants to take us on this journey that he just took. This king has met God personally and because of that he has come to know him and put his faith in him and he's changed man. He's not the same man that he used to be. He's not the same man that he was just a chapter ago when he was making an image to himself. He wasn't the same man that because of his great arrogance cost his own nation these great war heroes that he had that he forced to carry up these three, these three uh, children of Israel and uh, take them to the top of the fiery furnace. And if you remember the account, they died in the process and yet those three men were saved by God. This isn't the same man that we just read about not too long ago. Something has happened in his life. There has been a great change. And we need to recognize and understand what that change is. He has come into a right relationship with God. And he's, an ex he's excited about this new experience that has just taken place in his life. And because of that, he says this. Hey, you know what? I, I, I want to let everybody know. All the people, the nations and men of every language that live on the face of the earth. In essence, what he's saying is, you know, the man that you see today or this man that's writing to you today is not the same man that you knew before. There's been a change that has taken place in my life. And as a result of this, I need you to understand and know what's going on. All that you see here is a result of the grace of God. You know, it's fascinating. He wants to tell everybody about it. He is so excited. He cannot help but tell everybody about it. Boy, isn't that interesting? When a person comes into a right relationship with the God who made them, they can't help but be excited about letting people know this great experience that they just had. When a person believes in Christ as Savior and has the assurance of security and salvation and has a joy about it, he wants to share this information, to pass it on, to tell other people about Christ. And I think it's important that we recognize and understand that we have been entrusted with the most valuable possession that we could ever obtain on the face of the earth. And that is a knowledge that we have when we put our faith and trust in Christ and that we're, quote, born again or become a child of God, that we have a right relationship with God. And the Bible clearly teaches that because of that, we have eternal life and we'll spend an eternity with God. Not only do we have an abundant life here on earth because we know our final destination, but because God is in control of all things and we've come into that relationship with God, we need to recognize and understand that we live in a world today that's looking for direction and is looking for hope. We need to recognize and understand that God has entrusted to us this great gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The Bible says it's a treasure that we're to to maintain with with a tremendous amount of respect and also with a tremendous amount of excitement. You cannot help and I cannot help but to share with others what God has done in my life. I can relate to the excitement that Nebuchadnezzar has and to the joy that he has to be able to share with his kingdom and his people that they too can have a right relationship with God. That they too can have peace and contentment and security and joy. That they too have this gift that's being offered to them and just not to monarchs or certain people, but God extends this invitation to all people. For God so loved the world, all of the world, every race, every color, every creed, every background, every economic walk of life, every gender, God loves people. I can relate to that. And the reason I can relate to this is because this past week our family and the school that our our son goes to and daughter was involved in a tremendous tragedy. One of my son's teammates on his baseball team and a friend of our family's, you may have read about it or heard about it, uh, murdered his father. Um, His father was a probation officer for 25 years in Orange County and he was uh, an athlete that our son played with. We received many phone calls as a result of this. And some of the parents decided that they needed to get together and have a place for the kids to get together. And on Friday night they called, and, and, and Friday, Thursday night they called, and Friday night they had a meeting and asked if I would come and if I would speak. And as I was studying this and, and, and studying this joy that Nebuchadnezzar had in spite of the tragedy of everything that goes on in life, The only thing I can think of as I stood before this room full of people was the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar shared with them. And as the man that you see here today, and many of them didn't know me, and they didn't know our background, they didn't know what God had done in my life. And they see the the result, or at least the work in progress that they see. And a lot of people can't relate to where we are because they don't know what God's done in our life. And so we have to kind of take them back in retrospective and say, you know what, the person that you see standing before you isn't the person that I was 20 years ago. And I need to tell you the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And let me tell you a little bit about my background, and let me tell you a little bit about my family background, and let me tell you something about the hate that I had in my life. And let me tell you that Jesus Christ took that hate out of my life. And what you see standing before you is a trophy of the grace of God. And Nebuchadnezzar was trying to get that across to his people as well. And what you see standing before you, ladies and gentlemen and men of every language and all the peoples of the world is a trophy of the grace of God. We need to recognize and understand that. And as I was struggling with what to say, the words of Scripture kept coming back to my mind. And I thought of the Apostle Paul as he was called on to testify before man and he said this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. As crazy as it sounds to people, and as much as you don't want to hear what I'm about to say, I am compelled to tell you because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope that this world will ever have. And we need to recognize and understand that. And it's only after one receives the forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus Christ that one finds peace. The Bible tells us that we now have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we have peace with God, then we have the peace of God. We have access to the peace of God. For the Word of God says, Be anxious for nothing or troubled about nothing. But in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
and this day of trouble and day of calamity, come to me and I will hear you. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as I was walking into the room before I had a chance to speak, I broke down at just the, 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 the sight of what was going on and the tragedy of all of it and the, lo- the lack of hope that people have and the trouble that's in their life and the lack of peace and certainty and direction and lack of assurance of their, of their future. We live in a culture that's done everything to try to chase God out of our existence. And yet, you know what? Every person that was in that room, as much as they ran from us because they knew we were, quote, religious people of some sort, and the last thing you ever want to do with one of them is get into a conversation about spiritual things. And yet every one of them, when there, when there was nothing else and nowhere else to turn, recognized that, you know what? This world is shallow, and only God can give hope at a time like this. There's no hope outside of God in a time of death. There's no comfort to those who have just lost a loved one. There's no comfort to those, to to the mother of this young man as as he sits in a cell waiting to be tried and goes through all the consequences of his action, whether it will be tried as an adult, whether it will be tried as a juvenile, whether it will be found mentally competent to stand trial at all. There's no comfort outside of God in a situation like that. Oh, you can, you know, strap up your bootstraps and you can get tough and all those kind of cliche things that we hear. But it's all shallow and there's nothing to any of it. People are looking for answers in life. They need hope. And the Bible says that we can have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in a world that's looking for peace in all the wrong places. We live in a world where we're told that, you know what, just go out and get drunk or do drugs. Just go out and buy material things, and then you'll have joy and contentment in your life. Just go out and have whatever kind of sexual relationship you want, and then somehow or another you'll find peace and satisfaction and joy in your life. And ironically, we even have people who go out and they use violence to try to find peace in their life. You know, we have an enemy who wants the worst to appear to be the better. Here's a young man who thought that he could find peace from his father by eliminating him from his life. That young man has no peace today as he's sitting in a cell with shackles on, wearing jumpsuit, wondering what's going to happen. He was looking for freedom and now he's in prison. Don't you understand that we've got an enemy that wants the worst to appear the better, to try to point us in a direction? There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is always destruction. We need to recognize and understand that, you know, the only place that we can turn is to God for peace. Because Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. When the angel announced the birth of Christ, he said, peace on earth to whom men, to, to, to men whom God is pleased. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to understand. In fact, look what he says at the end of verse 1. He says, may your peace abound. You're looking for peace? Let me just tell you a little bit about how you can find peace in your own life. He's saying, may your peace abound. May your peace abound. He says, it seemed good to me to declare the signs and the wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Look at that. Isn't that a wonderful purpose statement of what he's doing? In case there's anybody that was wondering, man, what's he up to this time? He says, you know, it's, it seemed good to me. This is a good thing. This is an excellent, wonderful thing. The gospel is good news. That's what it means. It is a good thing to tell those who hurt in this world that God loves them and has provided a remedy for their sin. It is a good thing, and it brings peace into the life of everyone who believes. He says, that's a good thing, and I want to tell you about this. And look what he also says. He says, I want to tell you and declare the signs and the wonders. The signs. We need to recognize and understand something. Everything God does is motivated by love. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, as he looks back in his life and he looks at all the signs. You ever hear people say, I should have seen the signs. There were signs along the way. I should have seen that. That's what all these people are struggling with and wrestling with. We should have seen the signs. We should have seen the signs in their relationship. We should have seen the signs in how he responded and what was going on. We all should have seen the signs. We don't see the signs because we're too busy just jetting down the freeway of life. And as long as things are going good, we don't even look for the signs. But you know what? We have a God who loves us. And what he tries to do is throughout the course of every person's life, he leaves us signs that say it's time to slow down and pull over here. You need to get off the freeway right now and deal with this sign that I just gave you. Has God ever given you a sign in your life? I'll tell you right now, this is a major sign in the lives of a lot of people. You can't ignore this. It's too close to home for many of us who are involved. But you too have your own signs. You ever have a, a friend or a family member who died? That's a huge sign. You're going to die. What are you going to do about it? Where do we go? Why are we here? What's the purpose in life? That doesn't get, you don't get a bigger sign in life than that. If you ever had someone in your life who has been declared terminally ill... Or had a disease of some sort and maybe or maybe not this may cost them their life there's a sign you ever somebody was in an accident and finds himself in a hospital there's a sign you ever lose a job and all the things that you thought were important in life and all the financial and the ladder you're climbing and the career that you're going after and all that stuff that went with it and it was all gone in a moment's time there's a sign Solomon said the same thing in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 as he was looking for peace in his own life and he went back through and he looked at all the signs that God gave him. He had material things that didn't fill him. It was vanity, he said. He had all the relationships with women that he could ever dream about. It wasn't satisfying or fulfilling. There was no contentment. It too was vanity. He, he was involved in alcohol to pursue the great things of life. He had all the accomplishments and the achievements and some of the greatest wonders the world has ever seen. And he looked at all these things and said, hey, all those things too are vanity. He had the great knowledge and wisdom that God had given him because he prayed for wisdom and God gave him wisdom that was greater than any man had in the, in the, on the face of the earth. And he said even human wisdom is vanity. He had all the degrees that were racked up, piled up, stacked up, put into frames and then put in a box in a closet. He had all those too. And it was vanity. He had all of that. And you know what his conclusion was? He said in Ecclesiastes 2.24, I've come to this conclusion for who can find enjoyment, who can find peace, who can find satisfaction in this life outside of him who has created us. Nebuchadnezzar's in the same boat. He too is going to come to the same conclusion. You know, there are signs in our life and it's a huge knock-knock. Is anybody home? He was talking also about the signs. What was fascinating is, you know, God's enemies knew about the signs that God had demonstrated to the nation of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. They had heard throughout history that this, this God of the Israelites was a God who did great things. There were the ten plagues. There was the deliverance through the Red Sea as it was parted and the enemies, their enemies of Egypt were destroyed behind them. There was the feeding of the millions and the multitudes in the wilderness. There was, there was not only feeding them, but giving them to, uh, water to drink in the middle of nowhere where there was no water and God provided for them. He led them by a cloud in the daytime to shelter them and by, by a fire at night to, to lead them. They had heard about all these things. They knew what a wonderful and great God that he was. They had seen and heard of those signs. And they ignored him just like many of us ignore him today. 
He was also talking about not only the signs, but also, look what he says, the signs and also the wonders. The wonders. Think about this. In chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he couldn't, he couldn't fathom what the dream was all about, he wouldn't even tell any of his advisors what it was because he wanted to make sure the interpretation was right. And guess what? Wonder upon wonder, God not only declared the dream, but also the interpretation. And that was a wonder that was left in the, in the reference or in the memory bank of Nebuchadnezzar. And God would later draw that out. And as we read here, he's saying, man, he says, it's my great pleasure to tell you about all these signs and wonders that the mighty, that the mighty has performed for me. You see how personal that is? Do you realize that God has done those things just for you? And that you will be without excuse one day before God if you continue to reject those signs and ignore them? They're done for you. They're done for me. I look back on my life and realize that everything that happened in my life was designed by God just to get my attention. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating. Let's look at verse 3. In verse 2, he says, Hey, you know what? The Most High God has done this for me. How great are His signs. How mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion is from generation to generation. Isn't that fascinating? As you look at this, Nebuchadnezzar, for the first time in his life, because of his experience in coming to know the God who created him and his faith and trust in Him and his conversion, for the first time in his life, he gave credit to somebody else instead of taking credit himself. Do you notice that? God deserves all the credit. It's important that he understood the concept of grace. God deserves all of the credit because God did all of the work. Men and women, that is what grace is all about. Let me read to you firsthand an account of a man who came to the same conclusion. And we need to recognize and understand it because it's told by a former seminary student as he was attending seminary and now he's a pastor and he writes these words. He says, A spiritual life class in which I was once enrolled at Dallas Theological Seminary under Dr. Schaefer provides a fascinating or a fantastic illustration of the grace of God. Dr. Schaefer was a superb teacher and his examinations were thorough but tough. When one of my friends saw the final exam, he just wrote his name on the blue book and turned it in despite the fact he had been cramming for days. He said, meanwhile, I wrote and wrote and wrote four blue books full of information. When I turned in my exam, Dr. Schaefer asked if I wished to see my grade and I was pleased when he wrote 100 at the top of the book as he laid all four books in front of me. Meanwhile, I saw next to my four books the blank book of my friend. And on it, posted in red, was 100. He says, obviously, I pointed out this apparent error to Dr. Schaefer, who, with a twinkle in his eye, said to me, look, what you write is your business. What I do about it is mine. You see, your grade doesn't depend on you. It depends upon me. From this, I learned more about the grace of God than I ever had before. For God's grace depends on who and what He is, never upon us. He disciplines when we're out of line, but He never gives us what we deserve. If He did, none of us would be alive, for everything depends upon God. 
Wow. You see, after his conversion, Nebuchadnezzar's life reflected a tremendous and wonderful change. And it was important that he understood the principle of grace before he started writing his testimony. It's an important thing for you and I to understand the concept of grace also if we're to share what God has done in our life through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful thing to stand before a group of people and say, you know what, this isn't about me. I'm going to tell you about me so that you understand about the grace of God. This isn't a I, me, and This is what Jesus Christ can do in your life if you just give your heart and your life to Him. Nebuchadnezzar understood that and he began to give credit where credit was due and that was to God Himself. How great are His signs and mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Verse 4 then begins to take us back on this journey. The retrospective begins to take place here. He's saying, hey, what you see now isn't the way it used to be and I'm going to tell you how this change came about and what happened that led to this point. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Isn't that interesting? I was at ease in my house and I was flourishing in my palace. What he was saying to everybody was, man, I was enjoying the good life. You ever had someone say to you, well, the only reason you're turning to God is because you're in such a mess? You're in a jam, things aren't going well, so now you're looking for a crutch. And my answer to them is a very simple one. Where do you turn? Double martini? Cocaine? Material things? other relationships to your money, to your bank account, to your power that you have on maybe your job or your career? Where do you turn? Everyone turns somewhere when they need help. But what's fascinating about this whole testimony is this. (laughs) This guy wasn't experiencing any difficulties. He was living in Fat City. I don't know if you picked up on this, but he was living in a palace! That's a big, big house. It's a nice place. The guy was living in a palace. He was flourishing. Interesting, as we'll see in a moment about this dream, but the word flourish means to have foliage. It was like looking at one of the most beautiful trees that you've ever seen, and it's gorgeous beyond description, and it provides shade, and it's a beautiful thing, and you look at it, and it's flourishing, and there's no sign of anything wrong with it, and it's beautiful. He said, my life was beautiful. From the outside, everyone looked and said, man, you got it all. And if I had half of what you had, I'd have joy in my life. I'd have contentment in my life. I'd have peace in my life. You know what he's saying? Hey, I had it all until God invaded my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Isn't that great? Isn't God great? You know what's so cool? Here's what I found about life, and I love this, because I don't necessarily come from the north end of the tracks. You know, where we come from was the south end of the tracks. I mean, it was okay, but it wasn't, you know, like what a lot of people see around here. Although I've also learned that what you see in Southern California isn't even real. (laughs) So... 
But you know what I'm saying. But it looks like it is. I mean, we got family that come from Pennsylvania, you know, outside of Pittsburgh. They live in a little place out there, and they come out here, and they just walk around the neighborhoods, and they look at all these houses. And I had my brother-in-law one time say this. He goes, Chuck, do you realize if people back home knew what was going out here, on out here and how much money people had and all the stuff they had, there'd be a revolution. Interesting. We start locking stuff up after that conversation. <laughs> but, but, but the point... But the point is really fascinating. It's like, you know, what I learned is this. And working with professional athletes is great. Because most people think, hey man, if I was making $5 million a year, and I was doing something like that, I'd be the happiest, most content, satisfied, you know, peaceful person you ever met. And you know what's fascinating about it is this. I want to ask you a question. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what would a man exchange for his soul? I'm going to ask you something right now. If you could have everything, everything that you think will make you content and bring peace in your life, and you could have it all right now today, do you really believe for a moment that that will bring satisfaction and contentment to your life? <laughs> oh, 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 that's naive with a big old capital N, brothers and sisters. There's no way in the world. You could have it all. And most of us have more than we ever thought we'd have. And we don't have peace and contentment and joy as a result of stuff. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar saw a dream. The dream made him fearful. And he laid on his bed and the visions in his mind kept alarming him, he said. And, uh, you know, it's always a fascinating thing. Whenever somebody walks up just with a piece of paper, something's written on it. And it, and it says something like, Shelby Alvers parents. Now, what is going on with Shelby? Well, we'll find out. I'm sure everything's okay. But if we all want to take a moment and watch, watch somebody walk, because I know it's a fascinating concept, and, 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 and most of us aren't really used to that. It's like, wow, look, there's people walking. Uh, and, uh, you know, it always amazes me what can grab your attention. But, uh, whatever. You guys have a really boring life. Man. All right. Let us move on. We're running out of time. Anyway, he's shook up. He's afraid. He's terrified. The Word of God says that even though he had everything, he had nothing. And he had fear and he had no peace. So look what he does. He says, So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Knock, knock, Nebuchadnezzar, is anybody home yet? Have we not gone down this road before? He brings in the same losers that he had come in the last time. And what's amazing to me is I get a clue, man. These guys are clueless. They can't help you, but you keep turning to them. And you know what's interesting about this? Because remember, this is a retrospective. He's going back, and what he's telling you is this. He is not up to this point in his life ever changed his mind about the God of Daniel. He still looks for human wisdom to solve all of his problems. He still looks to himself to be able to resolve these difficulties of his life. He's not turning to Daniel and to Daniel's God again. He needs to make sure that, you know what, I'm going to continue to reject the grace of God until I finally have no other choice. So he brings these guys in, and what's fascinating is, I like this, check this out. Hey, listen to this. He told them the dream. 
He already found out the last time that they failed miserably when he said, tell me the dream and its interpretation. This time he didn't want to take any chances, so he told him the dream. Let me give you losers a lot of help. I want to tell you what I dreamt, so maybe you can tell me something that I want to hear. You know what's fascinating is this. I don't think he called in Daniel because he didn't want Daniel to tell him the truth. He didn't want Daniel to tell him what he didn't want to hear. You know why? Because he couldn't handle the truth. People that know us don't want to hear from us if we're going to tell them the truth because they can't handle the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear and they want to do what they want to do. But you know what? When there's nowhere else to turn. He says, I related the dream, but duh. They couldn't make its interpretation known to me. When I had nowhere else to turn, I had to call in Daniel again. And I love this. But finally, I wonder how long this whole episode went on. Give it a shot, boys. Take your time. But finally, he gave up. But finally, he gave up. And when Daniel comes in before him, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, he's still calling him after his gods. He's saying, In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the vision of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. I'm reading through this. And I'm fascinated about this. And I'll tell you why. Do you notice that Daniel didn't push himself to be involved in the first meetings? Daniel didn't identify with any of these guys, even though he calls them the chief of all of the magicians. When they called in the magicians, Daniel didn't go in. He didn't look at himself as one of them. He was separated from them. And you know what's fascinating about God is this. Daniel just waited until God opened the door. When all this stuff happened this past week, it's an amazing thing as I just prayed about what God was going to do. And I have no clue yet what all, he, what all He's going to do. But I know this, that people who I never thought in my life would ever come looking for me, came looking for me. When the phone rang the first time, it was from a man who's done everything that he can to stay away from me. And everything that I believe and everything that I've been trying to share with him and try to encourage him and... He didn't want anything to do with it. But that was the first phone call I got. And the second phone call was just as amazing as the first and the third and the fourth. And it's just been a process. It's just been unbelievable to me. Because when we wait upon the Lord, we don't have to promote ourselves. And when we wait upon Him and pray that we could be used by God, then you know what? What's interesting is this. While we are waiting for the day that God wants to use us, we must be preparing ourselves to be used by God. There's a reason that God chooses to use certain people. And the reason is because they have been prepared in advance for that moment in crisis. And the wonderful thing that I want to share with you is this. I am no different nor any better than any of you that God wants to use all of us for the moment of crisis in the circle in which He has placed you. 
But I will tell you this. It's wonderful to be prepared for the day that God chooses to use you to stand tall in a moment of crisis. And the way that we are prepared is by digging in to the Word of God. And I don't want to lay any guilt trips on anybody, but if it fits, if the shoe fits, then, you know, try to squeeze in it. But that truth is this. 45 minutes or an hour of Bible study on a Sunday isn't going to prepare you for the day of crisis. Joshua served under Moses for 40 years. And when Joshua's turn came for him to take a leadership role, we're told in the Word of God in Joshua chapter 1, God says to him, Be strong and be very courageous. And you know what He tells him to do? He says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall be careful to meditate on it and do according to all that is written in it. And then you will find your way prosperous. And then you will have much success. Do you notice that? For 40 years he waited in the shadow of, of, of Moses. And then God said, Okay, it's your turn. And it's your turn because you're prepared and you're scared. And, and you don't think that you're prepared, but let me tell you something. If you just stick to the Word of God and don't depart from it to the right or to the left, guess what will happen? Then you will find your way successful and then you will find your way prosperous just like the tree or the man that's planted firm by the trees of water and he has deep roots. So is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or, sit in the, the, or stand in the path of sinners or, or sit in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates on it day and night you know when I got a call I was scared to death I was going to say what do you tell what do you tell people some superficial don't worry about it it'll be okay it'll heal with time blah 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 none of that's going to help anybody there's no hope and assurance in that nonsense but if you can stand before him and say you know what God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that the gift of God is free. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you've got that to share, it's a tremendous treasure. And that's why Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled when you think about death. Believe in Me, for in My Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that. But because it's true... One day where I am, I will come and take you so that you can be with me. The Apostle Paul said, when I'm absent from this body, brother, I'm going to be present with the Lord. So, you know, I'm really torn between two worlds. I want to go to be in heaven because that's a great and wonderful place. And yet at the same time, but because of all of you, I want to stay here for as long as God feels He can use me. Do you recognize and understand the importance of being prepared by God to be used in a moment in crisis? God just didn't arbitrarily choose Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends chose to follow the Lord. They chose to dig in the Word and they chose to be obedient to the Word of God. I mean, this isn't a coincidence that Daniel's name keeps popping up as being a man who stands tall at a time of crisis. You and I need to recognize that. He was prepared for that moment in time. And he was prepared by, first of all, coming into a right relationship with the God who, who created him. We too can be prepared by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and then digging into the Word of God and then walking in obedience in the Word of God and then praying, Lord, I don't know what I can do and I'm scared to death, but I do know this, that with you with me, I, no one can be against me and you just give me the words to share that it will be a comfort to these people and may Jesus Christ get all the glory and all the praise.
That's what we're to do. Now, as he tells this dream, the interesting thing is, we don't really have any time to get into it. (laughs) But what I like about that is, it almost makes you want to come back again. So as we look at this dream, and we'll look at the content of it next time, I'm going to ask you a question as far as, for now, what have we learned? Can I just share some things with you that I learned this week from this to share with you that might be of help? First of all, the peace or lasting peace that we can have in our life comes as a gift from God to one who believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We now have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to find peace on the face of this earth. God's grace depends on who and what He is and never on us. I'm going to have a chance to go share with a young man that's sitting in prison. I've been asked to speak at the funeral for his dad. It's going to be a fun week. But there's nothing more exciting than to be able to tell a person that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To tell a young man who in a moment of anger killed his father that God can forgive them for even that. And but by the grace of God, there goes you and I. Even if he spends the rest of his life in prison, but can spend eternity in the presence of God, this tragedy will all make sense. This tragedy will all be worth something that has some redeeming value. And for all the people that come to a funeral wondering why we live such in such a violent world, where a person could turn to violence, try to find peace. Think about that. We live in a world where people are killing each other, trying to find peace. Does anybody see the irony in that? We've learned that God, motivated by love, continues to invade our world with signs and wonders in order to get us to look up to Him. We've learned that all the prosperity of this world cannot shelter us from the fear of dying and one day giving an accountability to God. And we've also learned as we wait upon the Lord, we're being prepared. As we prepare ourselves through the study of the Word of God for the day of crisis, when others will turn to us for encouragement and hope, people that you think don't even know, that you don't even think know you exist, are watching your life. Because we're a light that's shining in darkness. Do you realize there are people in your life who are watching you? They've heard that you're different. They've heard you're a Christian. They heard you go to church. They heard you don't go to the parties. They heard you don't swear. They heard whatever it is that they heard about you. Do you realize that they've heard things, but they've never seen them for themselves? That we're on stage and people are watching? That doesn't mean that we're phony. Let's be real. But let's be really in love with Jesus Christ. Let's be really in love with the Word of God. And let's walk in obedience. Because as we're being prepared, one day in a moment of crisis, all that preparation will pay off for the kingdom of God. We need this world to know that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time to be together. We just thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunities that you give us 
and God, how inadequate we are for those opportunities. And yet you tell us to fear not, for you are with us. Be not dismayed, for you are our God. That you uphold us with your right hand. Though you give us strength and you'll give us courage in a time of crisis. To stand in the gap for the kingdom of God so that Jesus Christ gets all the glory and praise. God, we just thank you for that. What an honor it is and how humbling it is to be chosen by you to be used to reach others with the greatest news they could ever, that they could ever hear on the face of the earth. That they could come into a right relationship with you by believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That they can have eternal life, abundant life, and joy and contentment in this world that this world never would know outside of the person and the presence of Christ in their life. And we just thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen.